Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Today we are starting a series called Scandalous. And I don't know about you, when I think of the word scandalous, I don't always think of Jesus um, because sometimes the picture we have of Jesus is the opposite of scandalous. Um, you know, we have this image of him with fair skin and his hair is parted and his, you know, beard is perfectly manicured and, you know, a white robe and blue sash. And that's what we imagine as Christ. But, but the word scandalous really does apply. Maybe not to us today, but in his day and age, he was quite scandalous. When I think of the word scandalous, I sometimes think of politics. And don't worry, we're not going to talk about politics today. Um, but I, I did think of this story that I shared with you guys a while back. There was a, a story about a priest he had been uh, leading this particular parish for quite some time and, uh, in this town, and he was well-known in the community. And in fact, the mayor of this town was part of his parish. And so when it came time to retire, they had a big banquet in his honor, and the mayor was going to speak at the banquet. And the time for the banquet began, and, and the mayor wasn't there yet, and so they were waiting and waiting. Finally, the priest gets up, and he shares a few words, and, and he says, you know what? I've enjoyed my time here so much. I've loved it, but it always, wasn't always easy. In fact, my very first confession was a tough one. The very first confession I ever took was from a man who confessed to me that he was uh, not, uh, he was, had infidelity. He had been uh, committing adultery and, you know, outside of marriage, and he had been swindling people and, and taking advantage of people in his business and, you know, all kinds of ungodly things. And the list went on and on and on. He said, so, you know, the first day was pretty tough, but it wasn't always like that. It got better. And about that time, the back door swung open and the mayor comes running in and he apologized and said, I'm so sorry, folks. I got hung up. And he gives the, the priest a big hug and the priest is seated. And he says, you know, I've known this guy a long time. In fact, I was his very first confession. <laughs> so sometimes we hear about scandals and sometimes we are the scandal, but the fact is Jesus lived a scandalous life. If you look at the textbook definition of the word scandalous, it is causing general public outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. Some synonyms for scandalous are discreditable, disreputable, dishonorable, improper, unseemly, or disgraceful. And so when you apply these words to Jesus, you have to understand in his day and age, he was disreputable. He was, he was not at the top of the invite list for the different parties in the area among high society. He was a guy that lived a scandalous life. Even his birth was scandalous. He was born of a virgin. But you have to imagine in that day and age when people said, oh, there's Mary, the virgin, right? Oh, I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit who, who fathered that child. I'm sure that's the case. You had to believe that that was the case. And that didn't go away overnight just because she had a baby, I, you have to imagine that label, that stigma followed Mary probably throughout much of her life, and at least in that community, and it probably followed Jesus for much of his life in that community as well, because who your dad was was a really big deal. It was a patriarchal society, and because, because there was questions about who his father was, there were questions about him. He was scandalous, and he had scandalous words and actions. Jesus had a conversation with a bunch of religious leaders in John chapter 8. They were talking about Abraham, and he says this to them. He said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So what he was saying to them is, hey, uh, I just want to make you aware of something. I am God. And that was a blasphemous statement to the religious leaders of that time. That was a scandalous statement to them. 
And so they picked up stones to kill him. Their intent was, you have just violated the law of Moses. We are going to murder you. That was a little scandalous. That wasn't the only time Jesus said scandalous things or did scandalous things. Uh, he had a conversation in John chapter 3 with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was, he was a muckety-muck, if I can say it like that. He was a big-time guy in the church. And so he wanted to meet with Jesus, but he didn't want anybody to know he was meeting with Jesus because Jesus was scandalous. So he met with Jesus in the middle of the night. He snuck out and met him where no one would know because he didn't want to be caught dead with this guy because Jesus was scandalous. Even if you look at the triumphal entry, so uh, a week ago Sunday or a week ago today was the triumphal entry when the church traditionally celebrates that. And on that day, Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the last time and people are cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're waving palm leaves and laying them before him. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, on these palm leaves, and, and it's a time to celebrate, but not everybody liked it. In fact, if you look at this in Matthew chapter 21, it says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, and stirred up isn't necessarily a good thing, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. See, the religious leaders heard this, and they said, why are these people worshiping this guy? Do they even know who he is? He's just a carpenter. He, they call him rabbi. He's not even really a rabbi. He hasn't gone through the process. He doesn't have the right education. He doesn't have the right credentials. He doesn't meet our standards. Who does he think he is? And so they were frustrated. They were angry that, that the crowds were celebrating him and they were worshiping him. After this, Jesus goes in the temple and he drives out the money changers. And all these things are things that we look at and we go, well, that's a good thing. But it was upsetting the system of the day. So the people that were in charge and in control, they hated it. It was scandalous to them the way Jesus acted, what he said, what he did. He was scandalous. His disciples were scandalous. <laughs> the way things worked in this day and age, if you were a rabbi, you'd gone through years of training, rigorous studies, and what would happen is you only became a rabbi when you served under another rabbi. And at the right time, then you, you would basically be promoted. But even to serve under a rabbi, it was a rare task. It was hard to do because what would happen is as a young boy, a Jewish young man would begin learning the law and they would have to memorize scriptures and passages and it was more difficult the further you went and people were weeded out constantly. And so what would happen is if you were weeded out, then you were given a trade, you were given a job and that's what you did. That was your lot in life. But every Jewish young man, they, they, they hoped that they could become a rabbi someday. That was the pinnacle. And so what we see is, is Jesus was a rabbi, he was called rabbi, but he didn't go through the formal process, complete the process like we see rabbis of that day. And what rabbis would do was when they ascended to this place, they gave them the opportunity to pick the best of the best of the best. And what Jesus did was the opposite of that. Um, Jesus picked the JV squad, if I can say it that way. Did anybody play JV basketball or football growing up? I'm the only one. You were all excellent athletes. Wow, I am in over my head. I played some JV sports growing up, and you always wished you could have been on the varsity squad. Did anybody sit at the uncool kids' table in school? You are liars. <laughs> my church is full of cool people except me. Okay. These are the people Jesus picked. He, he didn't pick the people that were at the top of the class. He picked the people that were in the meaty part of the curve. He picked people like Peter, who was a fisherman, 
Or Andrew, his brother, who was a fisherman, they co-owned a business together, but they were still working class. They'd still flunked out of rabbi school a long time ago. James the Greater was a fisherman. John was a fisherman. Bartholomew might have descended from aristocracy. He had some education, but but he was one of the different ones in the group. James the Lesser was a tradesman. Judas, uh, who betrayed Christ, he probably descended from aristocracy as well, but that's why uh, he had education. That's why he was the treasurer. But the difference with him is he was Judean. All the rest of the disciples were Galilean. So even that was a differentiation. Jesus said, I want you, even though it didn't make sense on the team. Jude, also called Thaddeus, was a tradesman. Matthew, uh, also called Levi, we'll talk about in just a minute. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were the worst of the worst of the worst. Philip was a tradesman. Simon the Zealot was a fisherman. Thomas was a fisherman. Let me go back to Simon the Zealot for a second. The reason he was called Simon the Zealot is because Simon was Jewish, but he was part of a Jewish sect that actually wanted to violently overthrow the Roman government. And if we can say it this way, they were an extremist group. So what Jesus did is he assembled this group of followers that no one else would have picked. Hardly anyone on this list would have been picked by others. Uh, There's some evidence that Judas might have been a follower of John the Baptist, but really none of these people would have been people you would have picked for your team. If you're trying to win the world for Jesus and take this message worldwide, you probably wouldn't have picked these guys. But Jesus did, and it was scandalous. He got into trouble at times because religious authorities say, why are they acting like that? Why are they eating that? Why are they doing that? Because they didn't know the right rules. They didn't know the way to act in society. So his disciples were scandalous. Jesus' friends were scandalous. It says in Matthew 11 and also in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is called friend to sinners and tax collectors. This is, again, this is a badge that I think Jesus wore with, with honor. But in that day and age, it was scandalous that he would act this way. That a rabbi, that a teacher, that someone as acknowledgeable as him would would associate with people below his class was questionable at best and scandalous at worst. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says, After this, he, talking of Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. His his name is Matthew as well. It's the book of Matthew was written by this man. It says he was named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There were a large company of tax collectors and sinners and others reclining at the table. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at it to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. See, this is what you have to understand. Jesus would rather help people in need than impress people in power. I want you to hear that again. Jesus would rather help people in need than impress people in power. And too many times in our lives, we get that flipped around. We'd like to help people in need, but not at the expense of our reputation. We don't want anybody to think less of us because we're associating with the wrong kind of people or we're seen in the wrong place. It will hurt our social class. And what Jesus' attitude was, was I'm going to love people as if my reputation has already been ruined. He loved people with no strings attached. He did not care what class of society they were in. He didn't care how much money was in their account. He didn't care what kind of position they held in society. He chose to love people really well, regardless of what society thought about them. He he did not care about his reputation at all. In John chapter 15, verse 12, it says this, This is Jesus talking. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? He loved us sacrificially. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So there's a couple of important statements here. He says, number one, I'm telling you to, to love the way that I love. And the way that he loves is sacrificially. And he says, if, if you love well, you're going to love sacrificially. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. And this is before the cross. So this is foreshadowing what's to happen. And he says, if you're my friends, you're going to do what I ask you to do, what I tell you to do, which is love sacrificially. He says, you are my friends. So just like Jesus picked the worst of the worst to be friends with. He picked scandalous people to be friends with. The king of glory has chosen you to be friends with. He says, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know you, which is incredible to me. He, he's picking us for his team. And I know sometimes people go, well, Pastor Mel, you've been to Bible college. Uh, I'm the same guy. If you come on a Saturday night, um, I am way more likely to, than be wearing a jacket to be wearing a hoodie, a zip-up sweatshirt, and some Chuck Taylor all-stars. That's probably what I'm going to be wearing. He would pick me, which I don't know how I'm supposed to dress when I come to church, right? He would pick you. He's picking us because he wants us as part of his team. He wants us as his friend. Jesus had a scandalous death. The cross in general was something that was reserved for slaves and pirates and enemies of the state of Rome. Uh, it was reserved for the worst of the worst. People of, Roman, uh, of royal blood would never be crucified. People that were Romans were rarely crucified because it was such a horrible um, way to die that they reserved that for the worst of the worst. And it wasn't just a death sentence, but it was intended to torture and it was intended to utterly humiliate as well. It was designed to make the condemned as vulnerable as possible. And so one of the very first things they would do when they would, uh, in Jerusalem, when they would enter the praetorium is they would strip them naked. So some of the images we have of Jesus on the cross are actually him in a loincloth just for uh, modesty's sake. But the reality is, is he was stripped totally naked. And after he was stripped naked, he was beaten with a whip. And he was beaten so severely with this whip that, that um, medical experts will tell you that if they if people who were scourged weren't in shock at that point, they were close to shock because of the blood loss that they experienced just from the beating, from the whipping. We know that the Bible tells us Jesus was also placed, had a crown of thorns placed on his head. Thorns two to three inches long were digging into his scalp that caused bleeding as well. After this, we would uh, history tells us that a sign or a placard would be placed over the person's neck. And the sign would have the person's name and it would also tell what, they were, uh, what crime they were convicted of. So that way, as they marched to their execution, all the people along the route could see and they would know exactly who you were. See, this is what I love about Christ. Uh, the world will tell you what your sin is and tell the world what your sin is, but Christ will cover your sin. And I love this so much that he does that for us. So Jesus was given a sign and it said, Jesus, king of the Jews, the only thing he was guilty of was being royalty, which he was. And he starts the march to, to his execution. He's given the crossbeam, and the crossbeam weighed between 75 and 125 pounds, depending on its construction. And he carries that cross uh, really just in and out of consciousness as he is walking along. And it was about a quarter mile from the praetorium to 
to Golgotha or the Calvary where Jesus was crucified as the crow flies, but history tells us that Jesus was probably marched on a much longer parade route than that because of who he was. They wanted to inflict maximum humiliation. So here is Jesus who's been beaten to the point that he's losing blood profusely. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's wearing a sign around his neck declaring who he is in a humiliating way. And he's carrying his cross. And all along the way, and and history tells it could have been three to four miles that he walked, He's enduring jeers and curses, people spitting at him along the way. Some of the very same people who just a few days earlier were declaring his deity and declaring his goodness, Hosanna, Hosanna, were now lining the streets to mock him and scorn him. When he finally arrives at the point of his execution, he's hoisted up on this pole that was left there and he's nailed to the cross. Now, what we have traditionally learned is that he was nailed in the palm of his hands, but history tells us that probably wasn't the case. History tells us that he was probably nailed in the forearms because it would be harder for him to pull himself off the cross that way. So it would go between the two bones in your forearm and fix you to the cross, and they would put a piece of wood by the nail head to make sure you couldn't pull your arm or your feet through the nail. So as he's placed on the cross, they nail his feet. And again, traditionally, when we see depictions of this, it's nailed through the top of his feet. And historically, we find that probably wasn't the case. He was probably nailed through both heels, maybe to the side of the cross, because that inflicted maximum pain. So here our Savior is on the cross, naked, brutally beaten. He's been scourged. He's utterly humiliated. And he's dying for us. The word excruciating actually comes from the cross, the crucifixion. Excruciating means of the cross. So when you stub your toe and you go, oh, that was excruciating. Not really. It wasn't. It might have hurt, but excruciating means uh, we didn't have a word to describe how terrible the cross was, so they invented a word for it. Excruciating. Uh, Roman historian named Cicero, he said that crucifixion was extreme and ultimate punishment for slaves and the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. And so the question is, why would Jesus endure that? Why would he go through that? Why would he experience that? Why would he willingly do that? And the answer to that question is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that our our Christian faith is a marathon and we are running this distance and we have to run with endurance. And the way we get through it is by fixing our eyes on this one point and it's on Jesus Christ. And then he describes him, he says he's the author or the founder and finisher, perfecter of our faith. He goes on to say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So what was the joy that would cause him, be a catalyst for him to endure the pain that we just described? What could he possibly be thinking of that would, that would get him through that to the other side? And, and the answer is you, quite simply. And, and this is not hyperbole today. I'm telling you, it is you. 
Because when you look at the, the word joy here, in the Greek it's hara, and the, this word means the joy received from you, the cause or occasion of joy, of persons who are one's joy. So it's talking about joy, not just a feeling or emotion, but a feeling or emotion that's generated by someone else, by connecting with, interacting with someone else. And so quite literally, when Jesus thought of the cross, when he was thinking of what he would be enduring, when he thought of the pain, when he thought of the humiliation, what made it bearable for him to get through that was you. He was thinking about you the whole time. He, he got through all that because he was thinking about you. He said, you are worth it. Did he want to do that? No. Not at all. But was it worth it because of what was born out of it? Absolutely. He recognized that. He said, you are worth it. See, Jesus died a scandalous death, and his resurrection was scandalous as well. In Luke chapter 24, uh, some of his followers go to the tomb to, to find him. And that beautiful Easter morning, he had risen from the dead. He wasn't there anymore. The, the tomb was open. The stone was rolled away. The, the Roman soldiers were gone, and there were two angels there. And the angel asked them a question. He says, why do you look for the living among the dead? I love this question. Why do you seek he who's alive among all this death? Why do you try to find something that brings life among death? And so they went back and they told the disciples. Some of the disciples believed, uh, some of them didn't. There was a lot of question because it was shifting everything for them. And if it was hard for them to believe, how do you think the officials who had crucified Christ felt? The Jewish authority, they were freaking out. This was scandalous for them. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. So what happened is the Roman soldiers came to the Jewish officials and said, here's the story. Here's what happened. Here's what we experienced. And they go, okay, that is not what you experienced. Here's a, here's a bag of money and we're going to keep you from being in trouble, because at that time, Roman soldiers, if they were guarding someone and that person escaped, then they had to pay that with their own life. And so I'm sure they were concerned that their life was in jeopardy. And the Jewish officials said, no, 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 we'll take care of all that. Here's some money. Here's what you're supposed to say. And even today, there are still, uh, still people that contend that Christ didn't res wasn't resurrected from the dead, but his body was just taken, it was moved, and, and that's what happened. And one of the things I would say to counter that is, over the 40 days that Jesus lived from the time of his resurrection to the time he ascended into heaven, uh, uh, at least 500 people interacted with him or saw him. They, they witnessed him. So 500 people interacted with him. And in fact, 25 years later, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he, he's talking about the resurrected Christ and he basically says, if you don't believe me, go ask the people who saw it because they're still alive. Go talk to the witnesses about it. They saw it, they were there. And this 500 people took this message within 100 years, basically the whole known world at that time had been saturated with the gospel. The world had heard about this message. Now, you cannot tell me that a lie that was fabricated to cover up and keep this going is, would be enough to, to, 
to propel the message forward like that. I just can't believe that at all. The reason this was so scandalous was if Jesus was really alive, it could only mean one thing, that he really was who he said he was. He really was God. And that was scandalous for the religious leaders at that time. See, I said earlier that the cross was to be a deterrent. And in, in Rome, they would leave people on the cross. Um, there was only one case of every, anyone ever being, a body ever being exhumed that the person died of crucifixion in that day and age because typically they were not buried. They would be left on the cross as a deterrent. So someone would be crucified and the Roman authority would leave them there so that everyone could see. And basically what they were saying is if you live like this, if you make the same mistakes this person made, you're going to get what they got. So don't you dare think about living or acting this way. And what Jesus did is he flipped it. That which was to be a deterrent became a rallying cry. And, and Jesus actually said this in Matthew chapter 16, uh, well before his crucifixion. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? He said, if, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, you take up your cross and follow me. And his disciples, we think of that as a metaphor, but his disciples took that literally. Peter was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy of being crucified like my Savior. So he was crucified upside down in Rome. His brother Andrew was also crucified. Andrew was crucified, and he said, I can't be crucified like my Savior. So they crucified him on an X-shaped cross, and that's where you get the cross of St. Andrew is an X-shape today. We see James the Greater was beheaded. John died of natural causes. He is the only one of the disciples who died of natural causes of old age. Bartholomew was flayed alive with knives. James the Lesser was crucified and sawn into pieces. Jude, also called Thaddeus, was killed with arrows. Matthew, who we talked about, the, the tax collector, he was stabbed to death. Philip and Simon the Zealot were both crucified. And Thomas was stabbed to death. So we asked earlier, why would Jesus do it? But let me ask you this, why would these men do it? Jesus did it for you. Why would these guys give their lives? I don't think it was for you. And this is what I come up with. I really believe they had such a profound encounter with a living Jesus that it, it was a catalyst. It propelled them forward into their life totally differently than ever before. It changed everything about who they were. Because they were disciples before Christ died and resurrected. But afterwards, when they encountered the Holy Spirit in their lives, all of a sudden everything shifted and everything changed. And now these men who at one point were running away when Jesus was captured and crucified and denying Christ, now are willing to die for the message that they were once embarrassed of. What happened? And I'm telling you today, they encountered a real living Jesus that changed everything in them. And I'm, I want you to know this today. I don't want us just to have church. I don't want us just to show up on the weekends and we sing a few songs, and we hear a message, and we all go, and we, we're just nice. Okay, good. That doesn't change the world. What changes the world is a group of people who interact with a real living Jesus, that it gets so deep into us that it changes everything about our family. It changes everything about our workplace. It changes everything about our town, about our county. It changes the world. That's what made the difference. Why did these guys die? <laughs> because they believed so deeply in the cause 
They believe so deeply in, in the Jesus that they experienced, the love of Christ that they experienced, that they wanted everyone that they came into contact with to experience that same love, even if it cost them their lives. Even if they died a horrible, violent death, it was worth it to them. See, there's great liberty in living below your care of reputation. Jesus lived this out, and he taught them to do the same as well. My prayer is that we will do the same as well. We'll live below our care of reputation. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person one would even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Pharisees in the law would say, if you make yourself right, then I can love you. Pharisees would say, if you meet our standards, if you work hard enough, maybe you'll be good enough. But Christ says, I love you, so I will make you right. You don't, you don't have to work hard enough to meet my standards. I'm going to love you well, right as you are. I, this is the thing we have to understand. Jesus died for us at our very worst. Not at our very best, at our very worst. The first time I went out with my wife, I wanted to look my best, and it's hard to make this look good, okay? <laughs> but I wanted to give the best impression. I wanted her to think the best of me, because I was wooing her. Do you know what? When we come to Christ, we come to him in our filth, at our worst, neck deep in sin, and he still finds us beautiful and lovely. He died for us in that moment, not on our best day, on our worst day. That's what Jesus did for us. See, today I would ask you the same question that I think the angel asked some of Jesus' followers. Why do you seek the living among the dead? See, so many of us here today, we want to find abundance. We want to find true life but we look for it in terrible places. We look for it in unhealthy relationships. We look for it in our job. We look for it in our possessions. We look for it in, 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 it, in our achievement, all these kind of places. And the question I would ask you today is, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for something that's gonna breathe life into you in places that only harbor death? See, none of these things can bring you life. None of these things can, can bring abundance into you like Christ does. He is the source of life. In fact, he brought, he put death to death. He is the source of all life. So if you're here today and you're searching for true life, you're looking for abundance, I'm telling you, there's one place you'll discover that and it's in Jesus Christ. He, he was crucified brutally. He died a horrible death. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But he lives today. And because he lives we live as well. He's inviting you into life today. Will you accept his invitation? Let's pray. God, we love you so much, and we're so grateful that today you're alive and well. And I'm asking that you administer in us, minister in our hearts. I pray that you'd shift us, change us, and help us to become the people you want us to be. God, I pray for those that are here today that, that are living with sin in their lives. God, there's no condemnation here. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would gently draw them and bring them to you. God, I pray that, Lord, you would gently convict them and help them see that there is a better way, that you've got more for them than that. 
that you gave your life, not just so they could go to church or have a religious experience, but so they could experience life in you. So God, I pray that we would not settle for just being religious, just going to church. But God, let us experience a Jesus that's alive and well and so real. It changes and transforms everything about us. So God, have your way among us today. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Mel, what you described is me. I'm not really serving God. I'm not really in relationship with Christ. The truth is, what you said is true about me. I've been looking for the living among the dead. And I want to find that new life in Christ. I want to really experience what it's like to connect with a risen Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you or make you come forward. I just want to pray with you right where you are. So if that's you, would you be bold enough just to put your hand up real high where I could see it? And you can put it right back down. Thanks. Over here on my left, I see you. Who else would say, that's me? Pray for me, Mel. Yeah. Thank you, man. Praise God. Who else would join these? Just a few more seconds. Anyone else say, pray for me, Mel. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. I want to experience life in him. Yeah, over here on my right. Thank you. With nobody looking around, I'd ask everyone in this room to repeat this prayer with me, whether you raised your hand or not. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me by paying the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I am yours. Take my life and use it for your glory. Help me never go back to my old ways or my old life. From this day forward, I am yours and you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Listen, if you made that decision today, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, I just want you to know, Scripture tells us that you are a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. And we want to help you grow in your faith. So if you made that decision today, uh, if you would do me a favor and fill out, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says, need prayer. On the other side it says, salvation. If you'd fill out the side of the card that says, salvation, and drop it in one of our offering boxes as you leave. There's two in the back of the room here, one in the balcony there, and one just outside these east doors as well. Drop it in there, and we're going to get in contact with you in the next day or so and help you grow in your faith and take the next step. If you're watching online and you prayed that prayer, maybe you're here in the room and you can't reach one of the cards, you can simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. When you do that, we're going to respond back to you. We're going to help you take the next step. And if you're watching from the Indiana area, we'll get you connected here at Summit Church. Maybe you're watching from throughout the U.S. or the world. We're going to help you find a life-giving church in your area that you can connect with and grow in your faith as well. So again, thank you for worshiping with us today. Here's what's going to happen right now. The worship team's going to lead us in one final song. We're going to worship together. And while we're singing, our prayer team's going to come forward. They'll be on either side of the stage. So if you need prayer for any reason at all today, as we are singing this song, I want you to step out from your seat, find one of our prayer team members, and let them agree with you in prayer. And then in just a moment, when we finish singing, Pastor Kim is our, our women's pastor here at Summit. She's my wife. She's going to come, and she'll close us out. But do me a favor. Uh, please don't leave early before she dismisses you in just a moment. Uh, she wants to show you uh, an update from one of our partners, and she uh, wants to just share a few things with you. So stand to your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go. Guys, I would love to see you next week worshiping with us one more time uh, with Michael Francisi here. It's going to be a wonderful day. But guys, I tell you regularly, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Happy Easter.